Retro Hangover is supported via Patreon by listeners like you. We would especially like to thank patrons Lyle McCarns, Ashton Ruby, and Randall. Your continued engagement and generous donations are deeply appreciated. Open your ears and crack some beers. You are listening to episode 78 of Retro Hangover. Retro and classic gamers, welcome to the podcast where we are dangerous Dungeness Dragons daringly driving Dookie Dangaroos. This is episode 78 of the Retro Hangover Podcast. I am your co-host, Chris Copleen, with, as always, your host, Shane. Great Worm Prismatic Dick Dragon! Koski! You know, I know it wasn't your intention, but your alliteration for this episode could did nothing except make me think of Dunkaroos and how much I miss them, and also that I'm in my 30s and they would probably wreck my colon now. Everything wrecks our colons now. Dude, for real. But you know what wrecks things the most? Uh, great prismatic fucking dragons, man. Worm. According to fourth edition lore, that shit is like an unstoppable killing machine. I thought people didn't like fourth edition. They don't. I don't. But, you know. Listen, there is a silver lining to most really shitty MMO-inspired clouds, and, you know, that can be one of them. It can be. Yeah. Which is fitting, because for this episode, we are talking about, as you've probably already seen on the title card, Dungeons & Dragons video games. That's and right. This was one of our patron choices. This came from patron Ashton. So thank you, Ashton, for this suggestion. Thank you for this episode. I think this is going to be a little bit more of a tricky one. It's not going to be what you all are expecting. We kind of had to divert from the things we usually do because this is an episode discussing the kind of the history of the games themselves. So providing a brief history be a little redundant. So you won't be hearing that today. It's the whole episode. Yeah, the entire episode is the brief history of Dungeons and Dragons video games. Uh, Also, I I would just like to take a moment to highlight the stark contrast between our two premier patrons, Ashton and Lyle. See, when Lyle suggests a game for us to cover on an episode, he tries to inflict the most amount of pain by picking something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the Game Boy, whereas Ashton is a lot more like, you know, introspective and thoughtful. And he goes, you know, I'd I'd really like to know more about the history of video games and Dungeons and Dragons and how they are related to one another and how they are inextricably intertwined. And I, I just want to point that out. And that's a very long-winded and erudite way of saying, fuck you, Lyle. Also, I love you, but fuck you. You know, I just, I kind of view it as Lyle 
turning the spotlight to lesser known games that deserve to be known about <laughs> so we can avoid them. But we didn't avoid them. That's the point. Our listeners can avoid them. It was inflicted upon us. It wasn't afflicted. You know what? He's doing it for his entertainment. And he, I mean, yes. Is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I and we hope that we can make this an entertaining episode as well. <laughs> we just I, I'm a little afraid that this is going to get potentially two retro naughties i can i not retro not like not naughty i don't know <laughs> retro not esque Resk, retro not esque yeah uh that that's my only concern but we will do whatever we can to make sure that this is a good episode for you ashton we do hope you like it this is your recommendation but we before we get to the meat of it shane Yes. What have you been up to? What have you been playing? So I, I have a uh, I have an important announcement to make. Ooh. Yeah. I I have finally extracted myself from the the Gachapon daily grind of Dissidia Opera Omnia on my mobile device. Okay. It took a lot. But but I got there. I've come to the realization, um, you know, with a, a little bit of self introspection, that you know some people end up getting hopelessly addicted to substances like drugs or alcohol or gamer girl bathwater. Um, mm. And I, uh, that my my kryptonite, as it were, I think is is uh, games as a service, like ongoing games that provides you with that real, real sense of like FOMO, the fear of missing out. Yeah, that that's what really gets me. And so I don't want to like crap on the game because there's a reason I played it for several years outside of just, you know, hopeless addiction. But like it, it is a good mobile game. Um, and there's a lot of things that a lot of positive things that I, that I have said about it in the past and that I can say now. And I enjoyed my time with it. I actually genuinely did. It's a good imp implementation of what it does. Um, the issue, though, is I got to a point like last week where I was grinding through summon boards to get points to unlock like character upgrades for the over a hundred characters that are in the roster of that game. And I was spending literally hours a day just mindlessly grinding the same boss over and over again for these points. And then at one point in, you know, the, the week, I just kind of stopped and I was like, what am I doing? Huh. <laughs> and I just hit that like burnout spot. And then the, the next, yeah. And then the next day, it, it, I'm gonna be honest. It took a lot for me to not want to just be like, "Nah, I've, it's the sunk cost fallacy." You know, I've spent so much time on this game. I've built up my roster. Like, I don't want to just give it up. But I, I forced myself to not play for like a whole day, and then after that, I was like, "You know what? I'm good." Like, once I broke myself out of that cycle of like needing to compulsively play every day, I. Uh, you know, I was I was good. So so I am free of the Genshin mobile Impact. grind. So yeah, but you know, Genshin Impact's not really the same in that way, honestly. Like it, it doesn't demand nearly as much of my time as as like DFFOO does or did. Yet. Yeah, not yet. And honestly, if it gets to that point, I might have to make that same decision. But it, it's 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 freed up a lot of my gaming time to do other perhaps more productive gaming things like 
working through my backlog or playing a certain game that we're going to be talking about very soon and Uh things like that. So it's like weirdly freeing. And I I, listen, I'm sure some people that are listening to this probably totally get what I'm saying. And then other people are probably think I'm fucking insane, but a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's my story of, uh, mobile gaming addiction. And luckily I didn't drop like thousands and thousands of dollars into the game. Like some people do. It was more of just like my time that I can never get back. But, yeah. uh, you weren't the whale. You were the, you had a, you were a purpose with a porpoise. Yeah. A I was like, a, 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 was a dolphin, you know? Yeah. It was a dolphin. Friendly yeah. dolphin. Yeah. I'm not even going to try and make the sound. I want to make the sound. I can't yeah. do it though. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners appreciate that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, that's kind of the biggest thing is just stepping away from that. Um, other than that, yeah, I've been putting some time into a game for our, our next episode after this one, which I'm, I'm enjoying and I'm excited to talk about. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to be focusing on like trying to knock out some more games in my backlog and, and some of the ones that we have, uh, coming up for future episodes in the next couple of months too. So, uh, so good stuff. But uh but what about you? What 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 have you been up to? So I've been dumping a lot of time into Ogre Battle 64, uh-huh. which is extremely addictive, but it's not horrendously addictive. It's not that mobile game addiction that you were just talking <laughs> not, not about. Not gotchapon addicting, yeah. No, no. It's a different kind of addiction. It's like the Final Fantasy Tactics addi- addiction, if you know what I'm uh. talking about. Where you get into a battle and the battle lasts probably about an hour where mm-hmm. I'm at in the game. Every single ba- battle lasts an hour and there's 40 battles and they can, yeah, last over an hour. And then when you're tinkering around with your organized screen, trying to upgrade everyone's class, what they're going to quit, making sure they're ready for the next battle and everything like that, that can take like 20 to 30 minutes, depending on how much you want to do and how much you want to change. But mm-hmm. the good thing is, is every single time I'm done with the battle, I can just move on from the game. It's like, okay, I got my battle done for the day. And then I don't have to really worry about anything else. And that's what I love about it. Like the battles are fun. It's, 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 it's really hard to describe. It's you essentially, if you haven't played ogre battle before, it's the same as the SNES one, except it's just for the N64 and looks a lot better, but you control little armies and you send them to cities and they have to liberate cities and you have to take over the enemy base in order to win the map. And then when you run into enemies, the, the way that you set up your characters, their classes and formations, they fight against the other enemy unit, but you don't control them. You just set them up to for what actions they're going to perform on a nine by nine grid. OK. And you can take up five spaces in that grid. So for me, that's just really addictive. Just trying to make sure you send the right units to the right location, making sure you're balancing out your team correctly, making sure that you're keeping everyone equipped properly making sure you don't have one character that can just run through everybody, which I think is impossible because my main my main character unit can just flatten everything he runs into, which is <laughs> kind of problematic. But I'm enjoying it. Other than that, I got my CRT TD, CRT TV fixed, and that was an adventure because <laughs> I had to call almost every TV repairman in town and every, almost every single one of them, except for two of them, as soon as I talked to them, like, hey, I'm trying to get a CRT TV repaired. Before I could say repair, they said, nope, we don't do that. Nope. I'm like, what? <laughs> They're like, nope, 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 won't fuck with it. 
Like, what? Why? Oh, it's obsolete. Can't find the parts. Bye. And they're just like, almost immediately hang up. Like, wow. this is like, what? Whoa. So I call this one dude and he's like, yeah, I'll come out. And like, oh, okay. This is awesome. So he takes a look at it. He replaces some capacitors. Works brand new. Paid a really decent price for it. And he's like, man, you know, they don't make TVs like they used to. These are so solid. These new ones are just, they're a pain in the ass. But they're all module based. And... Mm-hmm. Um, it almost costs more to get the TV repaired than to just get a new one. I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm getting yeah. the CRT repaired. Because when I went, I when I went on to eBay to look at the model I had, I think the cheapest one with free shipping was three hundred dollars. Hmm. So apparently, CRTs are maintaining their value. So I think everyone who's listening to this who plays retro games and has old retro systems knows how near and dear. CRT TVs are to playing the authentic retro game experience. Even Shane, you know this, and because last time when I was at your house when we were hanging out, we were playing uh, Turtles on a CRT TV. Hell there's yeah! Just, there's no replacement for that feeling. There's there's no replacement in audio and well audio probably, but visual quality. You can't <laughs> get the same. You cannot get the same experience on a on a flat screen. It's not no. even close. Unless you, you dump get... serious money into Frame Meisters and shit. Oh God, yeah. Well, I'll say, but you you can never truly replicate the the warm, comforting, slightly static glow of a CRT TV and that buzz. That's right. Just always in the background. It's great. <laughs> it's why we all have mild tinnitus, <laughs> and we're all slightly radioactive. <laughs> it's not five G people. It's the CRT TVs that kept pumping in those radioactive waves into your body it's the new generation that will free us from the lizard people we'll be all right it's all right it was worth it totally worth it you know what's also <laughs> worth it our what's games that? based off dungeons and dragons what well, some of them i'm sure yeah well um, <laughs> yeah some of them <laughs> so so here's how how we are going to do this because yes it, there's a lot of games here and obviously me and Shane have not played all of them. Shane plays more D&D in real life. I don't think he plays a lot of D&D video games, though. I'm not saying he hasn't played any. We will get to that, certainly. And I, I don't really play D&D at all, but I've more played the video games. So we'll discuss what we kind of know about and we'll hit up on anything that's important. But of course, we're not going to go into deep dives here. We're, we're going to try and provide whatever we can with some of this, uh, some of these things because it is important to know a lot of the games that were developed off D&D, because I think we both agree Dungeons and Dragons is probably the most important tabletop game when it comes to gaming, just in general, video games, tabletop games, any, any, well, not like sports games, obviously, because people who who couldn't play sports played Dungeons and Dragons. So, (laughs) Uh, excuse me, I did both. Thank you very much. Well, you did one better than the other one, obviously. I'm so we, I am a I am a true Renaissance man, is what I'm what I'm trying to say. <laughs> You're right. Uh, so we're we're just going to touch on these. Some of these could have their own episodes, and they probably will. And they probably will. So if you don't feel like we're going too in depth with some of these things, one is probably we probably haven't played it, or two. We are really going to be holding back for something we love. And uh, I mean, just for instance, like Boulder's Gate, we could talk on and on and on and on about it, but we're going to try and hold back. So I'm going to list some games and then Shane is going to expound on a couple of them. So I'll list like two or three and then we'll talk about it 
uh, if it's important. All right. So Shane, are you ready? Uh, yeah. Let's let's walk through the the chronology of the D and D video games. So we're going to start in 1974. I do think we kind of have to talk about 1974 because that was the year that the original Dungeons and Dragons was released, which yes. was a tabletop game, as we have already said. It was extremely basic game, nothing like what you have today. You had three classes and four races. And yeah, and actually, it. if I if I recall correctly, I think some of the some of the classes were races. Like there was some weird crossover there. Like a class was like a dwarf or whatever. I don't know if that was in the original one or later. I'm not sure. What yeah. I saw, there was three classes. Uh, fighting man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying the, to. The man who punch good. With see, also wanna... maybe sword. Yeah, I mean, that might have been uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons where there was like the weird class race thing or whatever. But Point yeah, being like is that, yeah. yeah, point being is that 1974 and 75 was, uh, you know, we're starting there, obviously, because that's the release of the original D&D uh, game set. And almost immediately, they came out with a game called D&D. It's probably really tiny. It was made by some people out in Southern Illinois University, and they made this game. And I, I think it's somewhat important. It is, yeah. Um, so I guess it also was kind of known by the Game of Dragons. I don't know if they subtitled it as that or if it was kind of like an unofficial title, but that that was also brought up into the discussion about that game. And uh, it, it's notable outside of being quite literally on the ball as being the first like video game adaptation, even if it's unofficial, of uh, the tabletop game. But uh, it's also credited as, you know, kind of one of the first non-linear video games uh, and also one of the ones to feature boss encounters. Because, I mean, you have to keep in mind this is the 70s where a lot of video games are still kind of in their infancy. And so I think this might get over overlooked a lot of the time, um, but it is important to note outside of just its relationship to D&D. It was a text adventure. I have never played it. I don't think uh, many people have. So it's not really a text adventure in the same way as like a a Zork or something like that. It was it, it actually did have some very rudimentary graphics. Oh wow. Yeah. That's cool. And by the way, this was not endorsed or licensed by TSR. It was made completely independently of D and D. I mean it's not even D and D, it's D letter N D. Yeah. And also on that, we should probably point out that we we are going to be touching on uh, some games that were inspired by D&D. And I will go ahead and put the caveat out there right now that there is no way in hell that we could actually cover every single game that was indirectly inspired by D&D because we'd be here forever. But we did want to highlight at least some of the perhaps more notable ones. So we'll we'll point those out as we go along. Yeah, we're not going to talk about Lord of the Rings, which is probably the most successful franchise based <laughs> off Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. I got. I know I got that one wrong. I'm fucking with everybody here. Please don't think I, I'm an idiot. I mean, <laughs> well, you know what? We'll just we'll leave that as is. <laughs> we'll just wait for the rage comments. It's fine. 
All right. So then we move on to um, 76 and 77. So Advanced Dungeons and Dragons comes out at this time, and that's where you expand out into more character classes. I think the races remain the same, but more character classes like your more traditional ones, paladin, cleric, monk, uh, all that crap, bard, illusionist. That's when you can start playing as those characters and you get the nine character alignments. So that's when Dungeons and Dragons, as we know it today, starts to really develop and starts mm-hmm. to really mature. Like Dungeons and Dragons was completely, almost a completely different game. But at this time, we had two games that you could argue were at least inspired in spirit by Dungeons and Dragons with Colossal Cave Adventure and Zork. And do we have anything on any of these, Shane? Uh, yeah, I mean, not really. I mean, you might say that the claim for inspiration on those might be somewhat dubious, but also keep in mind that, you know, a lot of the elements that we kind of take for granted now, um, because they're just so, you know, like ingrained in gaming as a whole really did originate from D and D. So the level of inspiration is perhaps debatable, but we could probably make a pretty solid argument that it is still there. Um, but yeah, not a lot else during that, during that time frame when, uh, AD&D came out. Right. I, I do think that if you look at text adventures or, or a lot of early games, role-playing games, quote role-playing games back in, uh, especially computer games made back in that time, it's really easy how anyone could say any of them were inspired by D&D. But take, keep in mind that they there were other tabletop games outside of D&D at the same time. So any of them could be inspired by any of them. We're just saying, hey, if you think these were inspired by it, we just touch on them. They're big games that you can draw a line somewhere somehow to Dungeons and Dragons. But I have never played either of them either. So <laughs> I played maybe Zork. they have nothing to do with them. OK, yeah, it was a while ago. We should we should do that on the stream someday. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a Zork episode. Yeah, didn't they remake it? Well, I don't want to get too much in a tangent here. Any case, <laughs> yes, 1979, I think, is a, is a very critical year uh, for video games, role-playing video games, with the release of Akalabeth, The World of Doom. Yeah, so this one is important uh, because this was developed by, at the time, a teenaged Richard Garriott, who, if you're not familiar with that name, and honestly, you probably should be, uh, he was the one to go on to create the Ultima series, so a very pivotal moment in the history of, of D&D-inspired video gaming. Also, I just want to point out that Akalabeth, the World of Doom, is like the most Teenage Edgelord title that you could probably come up with. And by the way, I'm not going to be like Shane. If you don't know who Richard Garriott is, that's completely cool. This was, I mean, holy shit, dude. This is, uh, this is like 41 years ago. So there might not be a lot of people who know who Richard Garriott is, uh, a.k.a. Lord Britain. But yes, yes, Lord British Lord British. I thought it was Lord Britain. Well, I see even I don't know everything, Shane. It's OK if these people don't understand these things. Well, the, all that's yeah. saying to me is that we need to bust out, you know, the format of our show that we haven't done in quite some time and cover an individual person. We'll do a Richard Garriott episode. So there you okay. go. We'll do we'll do Richard Garriott. Should be fun. Even mm-hmm. though the only Ultima game I've ever played is Ultima Online. So speaking of Ultima, this was in 1981. On. So yeah. 1981 had Ultima and Wizardry. Uh, and we'll talk about those briefly before we talk about probably the biggest D&D related game of 1981, which I think will surprise most of you. So why are we talking <laughs> about Ultima and Wizardry, Shane? 
I mean, because they're basically D&D, but just without the name. I mean, the the inspiration is clearly there. Uh, I mean, I, I anyone who's seen anything about any of the Ultima games or the Wizardry games and knows even a passing bit about D&D, you, you can see that the connection there is is pretty clear. There, there was a lot of inspiration going on there, but... Honestly, I mean that it's it's important as far as the history of just RPGs, but also D and D inspired games go. But I'm just gonna be honest that the next thing in 1981 is far more fascinating to me. <laughs> yes, and with this, we have the first, the first, the very first mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. officially TSR licensed Dungeons and Dragons video game. What? And it was. What system was it for, Chris? It was a system, technically. It was. I know. It was his own console. The Dungeons and Dragons computer fantasy game, LCD handheld by not Tiger, but Mattel. That's right. Mattel, the people who brought you Barbie. It looks like, well, they also brought you the Intellivision. It makes sense. And we're going to be talking about it in a minute, too. But you have a. I thought, I don't know how big this thing is, but it reminded me of Digimon back in the day, <laughs> if you've yeah. seen them. So it has three buttons, and it's move, attack, and something. It just It's just three buttons, and it's a dungeon crawler. It's, pro- it's a very basic and rudimentary dungeon crawler, but it is an LCD video game where you go through dungeon dungeons and you attack bats, essentially in a first-person perspective, bats and skeletons and shit. And maybe even dragons. I actually, I actually don't know I if, you, no if you do idea. that or not. <laughs> but I think that's that's incredibly cool. So first of all, you had it's an LCD game, and that's the first one. They're, they could have gone so many other directions. They probably should have. But <laughs> true, that's really interesting. It's also interesting. The first attempt at making a Dungeons and Dragons video game was was an action game and not an RPG. When they had the ability to do it, not so much on home consoles. Uh, because at this point there were, there were home consoles. You did have, you know, the Odyssey 2, the, the Atari, uh, 2600 and, um, the Intellivision were all mm. out this time. I think the ColecoVision was out as well. And you don't really have RPGs on that, but you did have games like Adventure. So you could have done something in, in that realm, but they went with an LCD action game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was not aware of this until we kind of were doing the the research for this episode, and I I'm I'm thrilled to know that technically the the first licensed D and D video game product was an LCD handheld. I also appreciate that on the back of the box it was boasting like over something like a hundred levels of gameplay and like something like insane, like LCD graphics and all this stuff. I got to look up a picture of the box again, but it was, it was pretty amusing, but yeah, interesting origins for, for the first D and D game for, for 1981 that, that they were, they looked pretty impressive. Sure. I'll give them that. I mean, today, I mean, they look like, like an LCD handheld watch. Yes. Like an LCD (laughs) handheld. So moving on to 1982, I think the most important one, I, I think the, the the first one to come out in 1982 was a different game. But this is I think this is a little bit more important to talk about before we get to the other one is the game Dungeon, which was a vert, which is a D&D like spinoff. It was 
released by TSR. It was based off D&D. It was kind of like D&D side quest in a way. Very much, it was all within the D&D universe, from what I understand. It was made for the Apple II, and it was co-developed by Bruce Nesmith. Who is Bruce Nesmith, Chris? Uh, he's only the lead designer for Skyrim. Oh, wow. Which I found, that was that's interesting. When you find out little tidbits like this, when you go back and you find these things in research. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And and I don't, I don't think I heard you point it out. But so in case you didn't, like this was a board game originally. Yeah. So it's a kind of spinoff thing in board game format. And actually, they made an updated version of this to kind of align with um, Fifth Edition as well. I have a copy of it, um, and and it's cool. It, it's basically like uh, it's like. Babby's first dungeon crawl kind of in a way where yeah. it's it's really geared towards um like a younger audience I think overall uh it's got really simple mechanics and, and that sort of thing but when you're really trying to make a D&D video game that's where you're going to start so it's almost the perfect game to really use the to start to establish things based off the D&D rule set right so I think that was smart that that was the first way they they went with it I'm really interested that that the guy who designed it ended up becoming the lead designer of Skyrim. So that's cool. All right. So later 1982 or earlier 1982, because I chronology, they came out with the first Dungeons and Dragons games for a home console, which was called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Cloudy Mountain, and it was for the Intellivision. Yeah. So the weird thing about this one, though, um, and we'll, we'll get to this in a little bit, but technically it's kind of the first well yeah outside of dungeon which again is just like a digital board game adaptation this is more or less the first real take on a video game using advanced D or or really any D in general um but the weird thing is is that it it kind of really just used the name um it, it, the gameplay itself doesn't really lend anything to the D rule set um, it doesn't really leverage much from the D&D content outside of really just the name, which I think is odd. And just going ahead to skip ahead a little bit, it did end up receiving a sequel called The Treasure of Tarman, which again was also an odd one. This was in 1983, but it was an odd one because even though it was a sequel to Cloudy Mountain, it was a completely different style of game where Cloudy Mountain was more of like a I guess you could say overhead view, but keep in mind, this is the Intellivision. So, you know, it, it kind of is what it is, but 16 um, bit console, right? But the difference with uh, treasure of Tarman is that it was a first person dungeon crawler, very similar to kind of like the dungeons and fantasy star or something like that. So or wizardry or wizardry. Yeah. But interesting yeah. to note at any rate. Yeah, I do think that's interesting. This is the kind of game that you would pitch to the kids from Stranger Things to buy an Intellivision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, hey, kids, you can play Dungeons & Dragons on your, your home consoles now. And you get it, like, this isn't fucking Dungeons & Dragons. This is this is something, but it's not Dungeons & Dragons. Just I don't know. What use your about. imagination. Imagination. But... You know, we were better at that back then, so I could see it, but you weren't rolling dice. You weren't playing with your friends. It was, like, very loosely fantasy-based, and it was kind of like a 
adventure-y kind of game. I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, though, really the only real line you can draw between the two is just the fact that it was called Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Outside of that, it could have it could have been titled literally anything else and it wouldn't have made a difference. So the next two years are really the quiet before the storm. Yes. And that's 1986, 1987. But we do have to talk about them briefly because that is the year or years uh, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest were released. Yes. And those. okay, this was a tough one. And I would say when you're talking about D&D inspired video games, and this is kind of where we're going to, this is also kind of the end when we're going to stop talking about non-licensed TSR games, because this is kind of, okay, everything offshoots from here, that's non-TSR kind of takes its own path. This is just what people were playing before they could really play an RPG that was playing by the D&D rule set. And if you want to go with either of these two games and which one is more D&D like, it's got to be Final Fantasy. Yeah. I mean, we were, we've been talking about this on our Sunday stream since we've been playing mm-hmm. through the first one um, for our, our uh, fall challenge. And uh, yeah, there, there's a lot. I mean, basically, as far as I could tell, for like 1986-87, I think playing Final Fantasy was probably the closest you were going to get to a D&D recreation like on a home console. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how old Might and Magic is. Maybe I should have brought that one up because Might and Magic would certainly fit into it. But mm-hmm. by this point, you already had Wizardry. So if you already talked about Wizardry and Ultima, talking about games like Might and Magic is kind of redundant. But yeah. then you get into Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, Fantasy Star, the the three games, major 8-bit RPGs, uh, those were definitely inspired. And I think we talked about this on the Fantasy Star episode, how they are inspired by Ultima and Wizardry. Now, the reason I look at Final Fantasy as being heavily inspired by Dungeons and Dragons is the, the surface level obviousness to it. You have multiple character classes that are selectable from the beginning. They each have their own strengths and weaknesses. They each have their own, you know, statistics that provide those strengths and weaknesses and the magic casting is almost identical where you have a certain amount of spells from a spell level you can cast per day whereas dragon quest and fantasy star use mp you have a mana pool so final fantasy completely apes the dungeons and dragons magic system and i don't know if that's the same in ultima and wizardry so they just could be aping the shit out of that and if someone said they ape ultima and wizardry even more it'd be like that's fine that's cool but in turn ultima and wizard wizardry completely aped dungeons and dragons yeah and honestly i think the the spell slot system that final fantasy went with um is probably the biggest connection between it and you know it's dungeons and dragons inspiration like that's the most direct one i think um and and for better or worse actually because i'm a i'm gonna be real like we mentioned this i think at least once on the stream that uh i have never really been a fan of that spell slot kind of system like that i think it's actually incredibly limiting and when you put that in a video game it makes it even worse in my in my opinion um so I think at least in terms of video games, I think the mana pool system that the overwhelming majority of games of this elk use and have used for years now is uh, 
I think, a far superior system just for playability's sake. All right, so we're about to roll into 1988. Oh, boy. Shane, do you you want a little break so you can throw in some music or something? I don't know. (laughs) This is where it starts to get big. Yeah. Kind of break up the monotony a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) this is where things start to really just fucking go from zero to 60 in like 10 seconds. So 1988. A little company called SSI, or Strategic Simulations Incorporated, gains the D&D license, and oh boy, would they use it. Oh boy. So the first game they would come out with in 1988 was Pool of Radiance. I have not played this game. I'm assuming that you have. Uh, Actually, I have not. I think technically I own it, I think on like good old games or something, but uh, no, no, I haven't. uh, There's a lot of these older D&D games I, I have not had occasion to go back and play yet but this one interestingly it was what a lot of people consider to be the first true D&D video game um, there were of course you know the ones that we just mentioned earlier that had the the official name and the endorsement from TSR and what have you but they didn't really properly represent the D&D experience and so a lot of folks see Pool of Radiance as the first real representation of D&D in like a digital space. Also interesting to note is that Pool of Radiance was was the biggest game in SSI's history, and that's including anything else they released after. Like they never topped the popularity of Pool of Radiance. And it was popular enough that it ended up, you know, causing them to come up with three more follow-up games uh, in that same series over the course of the next three years or so which was the Curse of the Azure Bonds, Secret of the Silver Blades, and Pools of Darkness. None of those, of course, as I mentioned, really hit the same peak popularity as Pool of Radiance did, but they all kind of performed pretty well in their own right. But yeah, that one is super important. Also, it beat out a lot of uh, very similar competitors in the market at the time, like Ultima 5 and uh, Bard's Tale 3. That is actually pretty shocking. Well, it is and it isn't. I think this is when... I wouldn't say this is peak... Dungeons and Dragons time, but it was right around there. This is the time in the 80s when every mother said that if you played the game, you get possessed by Satan. <laughs> so, uh, like, started getting all of those really great, like, uh, after school special shock kind of movies. Yeah. Every, like, everyone loves the 80s and the 90s, and to an extent, I do as well, but people forget that part about the 80s and 90s with the crazy, you know, religious outlook on everything and how everything that when everything would make you a Satan worshiper. And Dungeons and Dragons was one of those things. But that's probably what made it more popular, those Streisand effects. So that's yeah. probably why it took so long. When you think about it, it really took a long time for D&D to get a fully-fledged RPG on anything. 1988, we're talking PCs had... I mean, they weren't insignificant at this point. They could have made an, They could have made a game based off the D&D rule set, or at least saying it was based off the D&D rule set a couple years before this, if you look at PC technology. Definitely not on home consoles, I would say. That's why I say the closest thing you're going to get on the NES uh, MB Entertaining is your Final Fantasy, because they did have, of course, D&D license games for the NES. There's there's no denying that, and the Sega Master System. But this was the, the time that you first saw something that was just fully developed, fully integrated, and fully understood as a Dungeons and Dragons game, mm-hmm. much unlike the game Heroes of the Lance, which was released in the same year, which did take place in the Dragonlance 
setting, I guess that's the ba- way to put it. Dragonlance campaign? Dragon? I don't know. Yeah, but, setting. Setting's fine, yeah. yeah. Setting. And as <laughs> Shane put in his notes, not as good or as popular as Pool of Radiance. Yeah, so it was also released by SSI, of course, because they had the exclusive license to D&D for quite some time, actually. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it just it just was it could not compare um, to Pool of Radiance. And, you know, part of that is probably just due to the quality of the game. But I, I would wager that the other part of it is because Pool of Radiance was a much more accurate representation of the the true D&D experience, but but in a digital format. So if you're that much of a hyper nerd that you're going to be looking for a D&D video game in 1988, you're, you're probably going to want to go with Pool of Radiance. So I can see why that one would have, you know, been lesser received. And there was a bunch of games based off uh, in the Heroes of the Lance series as well. Now, one of the reasons it could not, it may not have been as good as what it was from the developer US Gold, which isn't exactly known for being the best developer of all time. Um, moving forward, 1989. So, first of all, the most important thing this year is that second edition for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was released. I think second edition is kind of, talking to AD&D nerds, is the, the most significant step between editions. Am I right or wrong on that? Uh, I would say yes, um, for a number of reasons. But one of the most important things for this discussion, though, that we really need to point out is that any game that was based on Dungeons and Dragons and held any sort of like, you know, standard as far as trying to adhere to the actual rule set of the game. And I, I put that disclaimer in there because a lot of the games didn't really give so much of a shit about the rule set and they just wanted to set it in the D&D universe. But for the ones that did, I, I, it cannot be overstated D&D 3rd Edition was not fully implemented in a game until 2001. So games from 1989 until 2001 were using the AD&D 2nd Edition rule set, which includes Thaco, by the way, which is insanity, and we don't necessarily need to go into the details of what Thaco is and why that's crazy, and that it lasted as long as it did, but... Just something to note. That's a long ass time. So this is really the the second edition is really the bedrock for every popular. Well, considering when the popular ones came out, like it's the bedrock for every popular D and D series. It is, yeah. In terms of video, less D and D video game series. Wow, mm-hmm. that is crazy, right? That's like over twenty years of using the same rule set. Well, twelve. Twelve. Am I not doing math right? You said 2001. This is 1989. Yeah, 1990. Right, 12. <laughs> I don't know. What, what is time? I, listen, man, I still, when I think of like 1998, I'm still like, oh, yeah, that was like, that was like 15, 10, 15 years ago, right? So, fuck That's the fuck. Way, same way I feel about January this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, moving on before I get depressed. Um, So, yeah, second edition came out in 89. And along with it, there were a couple of titles that got released. Um, As Chris mentioned, there was a sequel to Heroes of the Lance called Dragons of Flame. Pretty much the same style, more or less same reception. Uh, And there was also one called Hills Far, where the gameplay, like, oddly centered around just using a bunch of minigames. I guess it was kind of like fucking D&D WarioWare or some shit. 
but honestly, the critical reception was pretty negative, uh, more or less across the board. They just thought it was really tedious and mostly uninteresting. I feel like watching some of the quick videos of the game, I felt like there might have been some potential there. Like they had lock picking mini games and like horse riding and stuff like that. But apparently just not implemented very well. But that's really all you got in 89. I think I would say the most important thing about Hills Far is that it was developed by Westwood Studios, who would go on to develop Command and Conquer. Yes, but so Westwood they went on Studios, to do much yeah. better things. Westwood Studios would would make a a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons games that yeah. were licensed by TSR. So it's not they're no slouch on the Dungeons and Dragons front. But as we all know, or if you listen to our Command and Conquer episode anyway, the that Westwood Studios would would be more famous for its Command and Conquer series. Okay, 1990. We got Dragon Strike, Champions of Kryn, and Eye of the Beholder. I would say the most important is Eye of the Beholder. Shane, you want to talk about any of these? Uh, yeah. I mean, Eye of the Beholder is important because I think it was probably the first one to be set in the city of Waterdeep. Which, if you're a D and D person, you know why that's important. Um, and Dragon Strike was kind of cool in that it was sort of like a a dragon flight simulator almost for the PC version. Anyway, um, pretty similar to Magic Carpet, but like not as shitty. The NES version was more of a top-down shooter, which I think was a downgrade, but hey, it's the NES, so what do you expect? Okay, moving on, 1991, Death Knights of Kryn, which I think that's a sequel. Uh, Shadow Sorcerer and Gateway to the Savage Frontier are the three games that we probably don't have anything to say about. So before we do that, Shane, do you have anything to say about any of those? Uh, Yeah, no, uh, Death Knights, yeah, it was another follow-up, I think, in the third of four games in that Kryn series. Um. And yeah, other than that, not not much there. But I think the one at the end is probably the most notable. Yes, the game called Neverwinter Nights, and it's probably not the one that you're thinking about. Nope, it's not. Nope, it's the first graphical, massively multiplayer online RPG That's in right. 1991. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, I had no idea, actually, that this thing even existed until we started looking into this stuff. But evidently... It was uh, offered as part of AOL's subscription service. And if you're listening to this show based on our metrics, you are old enough to remember using AOL. And uh, yeah, so the weird thing is, and I guess this makes sense for the time, uh, but it was originally limited to only 50 players on the server at any given time because, you know, the 50, yep, the technology just wasn't there. Eventually that grew to 500. Um, but even then, you know, relatively speaking, that's a pretty small number. But at the time, that was a big deal. And over the course of the life of the game, it actually gained a total player base of over 115,000 people, which for an online persistent game in 1991, that's that's pretty massive, Im- pretty impressive. That That's not just impressive. That's massive. I don't even know if 115,000 ah. people are on online in 1991. <laughs> they, they, they were and they were all playing Neverwinter Nights. Yeah, it was Al Gore and his family. (laughs) That is an old joke. If you get that, I am sorry. If you don't get that, I'm also sorry. He was he was playing Neverwinter Nights through the series of tubes. Uh, He wasn't he wasn't vice president yet, so he still had some time, apparently. Yeah. 1992 Treasures of the Savage Frontier, Dark Queen, Dark Queen of Crint. Crin, I can't talk. Order of the Griffin and Warriors of the Eternal Sun and Pirates of Realm Space. Yeah, so really the most notable things in 92 um, were Order of the Griffin and Warriors of Eternal Sun because it's the first two games to be set in the Mystara uh, realm of D&D. And Pirates of Realm Space was important because it was one of the few, as far as I'm aware, 
games to be set in the Spelljammer setting, which is like this really weird kind of offshoot setting in D&D where it's like all about space and stuff like that. So that that's about it for 92. 93, Forgotten Realms, Unlimited Adventure, Eye of the Beholder 3, Dungeon Hack, Dark Sun, Shattered Lands, Stronghold, and Fantasy event, uh, fantasy Empires. I was about to say Fantasy Adventures. That, oh, that <laughs> you got that FFA the on the brain, man. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I don't... What's here? Yeah. So one thing that you're going to notice is that these lists get kind of long in these like mid to late 90s years. And that's because this was that boom of SSI games. Um, and it, it's arguably the first real like... I don't know. I would call it maybe like the the silver age or something because I don't believe the golden age of of D&D comes until a little bit later. But there's a lot that are coming out. There's not necessarily a lot that's notable. I will say that Forgotten Realms Unlimited Adventure is notable in that it was the last game to use the gold box engine uh that SSI was using to power most but not all of the D&D games that were coming out in the late 80s and early 90s. And by this time, uh, the engine was kind of already starting to show its age, so they were going to have to change things up. Other than that, uh, Stronghold was a city-building RTS, which was a little bit of a different you know, change of pace from what you were getting before. Uh, and Fantasy Empires was a map-based war game. So again, kind of spicing things up there. But, uh, but that's 93 in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah. Notice, again, a lot of these are pretty much using the setting of D&D as, a, as opposed to, well, not all, a lot, but still a decent chunk, and this will persist, are using the setting rather than the rule set, as mm-hmm. Shane alluded to earlier. Okay, 1994. SSI loses the exclusive license to D&D, but they still publish, like, five games. Of those five games, I'll list them really quickly. Uh, collector's Editions, so nothing new there. Uh, sequel to Dark Sun, Ravenloft... Al-Kadim and Menzo Baranzin is anything important. Well, it's impo- 1994 is just important because SSI lost their exclusivity deal. Um, That's the most and, important part. Absolutely. Yeah. So what that ended up getting us was just a if if SSI gaining that license um, was like the the impetus to get this flow of games coming in the D&D universe then this was like cracking the floodgates open because as soon as other folks could get their hands on that D&D license, then we just got a whole smattering of new stuff to come out. Um, but as far as what they released, not a whole lot. There was like super notable um, Ravenloft Strahd's possession, which I think was technically the first one to be set in Ravenloft's. And the only reason I'm pointing that out is because it's my favorite setting. So there's that. But. Huh. Yeah. Uh, there was also Slayer, and that looks badass. I need to look into this. Dude, unless it's, unless yes. it's terrible. So, okay, I don't know if it's terrible, but I, I agree. that That's the same reaction I had. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but suffice to say that Slayer apparently was not only an exclusive to the 3DO, as far as I could tell, but it is this, like, weird blend of RPG mechanics and, like, Castle Wolfenstein, like, slash Doom FPS gameplay that also featured randomized dungeons and enemies and bosses. That, to me, sounds fucking badass. So I don't know if I need to track a copy of this down and play it somehow, but I'm just hoping it doesn't suck. I need to check this out. Yeah. (laughs) 
This sounds like something right up our alley. I, yeah. I would love. I hope it doesn't suck. Maybe Lyle can suggest if it does suck, so we have to do an episode on it. But Slayer looks interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the one I, I get the most kicks out of, though, was Tower of Doom. I have played Tower of Doom. It is a fantastic Capcom beat-em-up that was released in the arcades in 1994. And, yeah, it just it's another game that uses the license. It uses the classes and the races of Dungeons & Dragons to make a fun little beat-em-up. Yeah, yeah. Not, not a lot to say there. Just a really solid arcade game by Capcom. And just to touch on it so I don't have to talk about it later, in 1996, they released a sequel to it called Shadows Over Mistara. And mm. they released both games on the Saturn to make use of the four meg cart. And it it's, it plays brilliantly there. Unfortunately, it only came out in Japan, obviously, because you had to have a four meg cart in order to play it. And the Saturn was a big floppy failure in the United States. So, ha. Huh. <laughs> but you can get it on Steam now if you want to check it out. If you like beat-em-ups. And, again, because Capcom made it, I think it makes it that much more significant. Because I just think more casual listeners to the show will recognize the name Capcom. And we'll be like, hey, I need to check this out. And it's quality. It's it's known as one of the better beat-em-ups that Capcom made that a lot of people just didn't get to play because it was kind of, you know, just jailed off to the American audience. Yeah, I, I've played, I own Shadows of Over Mistara on Steam and I, I've played it and it is, it is a lot of fun, especially if you can play co-op. 1995 had Ravenloft Stone Project. No, Stone Profit, not Project. Which is weird because that was really the only thing that came out in 95. It was like this weird lull and then you then you get into 96 and then it picks back up again. I really don't think D&D was really firing on all cylinders at this time, though. I think that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there there. We're almost there. Yeah. And I'm talking about D&D as a tabletop game and as a license and as a brand. It was really starting to starting to wane. Not there yet, but starting to wane. Okay, 1996. We have a bunch more games here. Uh Let's touch on the first one real quick. Dark Sun World Crimson Sands, which, if it was produced today, would have been made by Google. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this was the second attempt at a D&D MMORPG. Um, it was run by AT&T, of all people. And basically, they were trying to ape the success of Neverwinter um, that AOL had. And uh, big surprise, it didn't. And ended up shutting down about two years after it was released. So mm. probably a reason why not a lot of people even knew this thing existed. If that came out today, would that be EA or Google? Oof, I don't know. It's a tough call. Maybe Amazon. <laughs> no, Amazon sticks with stuff. Amazon sticks with stuff. They also have a track record of releasing complete shits piles. But yeah, go ahead. Go on. It, 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 it falls under everything. Uh -huh. uh, there was also the game Death Keep. Blood and Magic, we already talked about Shadows over Mistara, and Birthright, Gorgon's Alliance. Yeah, just a couple quick points on that. Uh, Blood and Magic was an RTS, which uh, was not like particularly great, but frankly was just really overshadowed by the fact that Warcraft 2 was released. Basically any RTS, I think, coming out around 1996 was lost under the massive shadow of Warcraft 2. Uh -huh. um, and well, then and Command and Conquer, too. It, well, yeah, yeah, actually, that that's another great example. And then Birthright Gorgon's Alliance, the only reason that that's really notable, it's a turn-based strategy game. Um, the game itself was okay, but the reason that I'm pointing it out is because it is, to this day, the only game that was based in the Birthright setting of D&D. &D. That has never happened again. Wow, yeah. that's interesting for D&D for &D fans, because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> in 19... So 1997, Magic the Gathering purchases TSR. That's right. Yes. Wizards of the Coast purchases TSR and absorbs them into 
the the amalgamation of uh, of the of the Watsi. From what I understand, this is from okay, and this is just from people I've talked to about D and D over the years. Yeah, and this was kind of where D and D started to take a shit. Is when Wizards of the Coast purchased TSR. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I guess. I mean. We're going to get there in a few years here in the chronology, but I mean, you end up getting third edition and there were, there were definitely some issues with third edition. Um, 3.5 was vastly superior in my opinion, but I wouldn't say it was outright terrible, but I, I think we're entering kind of, as far as the actual tabletop game is concerned, I think we're starting to enter a very serious lull period that kind of extended for quite some time. So... In terms of games, you had Descent into Undermountain and Iron and Blood, Warriors of Ravenloft. Okay, so we need to talk about that real quick. Um, this might be one of those ones that if we can manage to play it somewhere, I'm sure Lyle would love to see us suffer through it, but good lord. So Iron and Blood is a D&D fighting game, much like Virtua Fighter or Tekken, except way fucking worse, uh, and was for the PC and the original PlayStation. I will give them credit for trying to make a different kind of game using the D&D license, but uh, boy, this this just gets lumped in with all of those other like attempts to knock off like Mortal Kombat or the more successful fighting games because it it just it just did not get there. So what you're saying is they need to make a sequel called Iron and Blood: Masters of Terras Kasi. Uh, yes, that that's exactly what I'm saying. Nice. And for some reason, you put Diablo. Yeah, yeah, I f- yeah, I fucking did. So, okay, Diablo <laughs> came out would. in 1997, and of course yes. I would. Listen, I'm pointing out some of the more notable things. We could, you could draw parallels all day long to just a billion different games that drew some kind of inspiration from D and D in some fashion or another. The only reason I put Diablo outside of my own personal bias for it is just that it's a little bit more of like a direct correlation that you could make there in that it's kind of like an ARPG that I think takes a lot of inspiration from um, a lot of the elements of D&D. That's all. Okay. That's fair. You can get your D&D fixed with Diablo, I guess. Yeah. 1998. So this is where this is where you can really start getting your D&D fix. Yes. As as playing video games. 1998 is probably the biggest year for D&D games, period. And we've talked about this all episode. So this marks the beginning of the Interplay era of games when Interplay got the license to publish D&D games. And they released a banger right off the bat, probably established in the, the legacy of an entire development studio for decades to come in Bioware with Baldur's Gate. Oh boy. Yeah, this, uh, okay. So you know how I was saying that the the previous boom with like SSI and like that stuff was kind of like my, what I refer to as the silver age of, of, of D&D games. This is the golden age. This is where it starts. So 1998 and into like the early aughts, God, they just, mm. and which is weird too, because this is around the time that third edition ends up getting released in, in a couple of years from, from Baldur's Gate. And uh, while the actual game D&D I think was in a, in its sort of like lull period like I mentioned conversely the video game scene for D&D was just like off the fucking charts 
It was unbelievable. Like even myself, not a D&D player, got into Baldur's Gate. And one of the things, if you want to listen to our friends over the Region Free Gamers podcast, they did Games of 1998. And this was on their – this was one of the games they had in their tournament to determine who was the best. And they the one little interesting history tidbit they had on this, in the UK, Interplay projected that zero copies would be sold. Yep. They wouldn't sell a single copy in, in all of Europe. As Shane pointed out in the notes – it sold out its first 50,000 units immediately on release. It was a huge game for Dungeons and Dragons, for Bioware, and I guess Interplay, but they're not along, uh, they're not around anymore. But certainly Bioware is. So this was a huge, 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 huge game. Yeah, and it's also notable because it was really the second game that Bioware had ever made. So kind of crushing it on your second outing is pretty, pretty impressive. They, they crushed it. And we hope to make an episode about this in the future. We won't get too wrapped up in this. We know we're getting long-winded, people. We know you've been here a while. But this is the good stuff. That's right. All right. So 1999, Planescape Torment. Yeah. So under the same sort of interplay banner, you also had Black Isle, uh, which was Bioware's sister studio for all intents and purposes. And they were the ones responsible for Planescape Torments and a couple of the other ones that we're going to talk about in the next couple of years. But... This, this right here, so Baldur's Gate and Planescape Torment and all of this stuff in like the late 90s and early 2000s are the reason that folks who were playing these kind of games, such as myself at that time, have that kind of like enduring affection for Bioware and Black Isle, even though they're not really around anymore, because they just had this crazy string of amazing games that they put out. It's the same sort of effect that Blizzard had. And um, turns out most companies, if they last long enough, uh, it's, you know what? It's the Batman. It's the Batman thing, right? How, how, how does he put it? Like, you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It's the same thing here. Most of these companies, like Black Isle, they went away in their prime. And we all remember them very fondly. Bioware, not so fucking much. Same thing with Blizzard. So, you know what? What I'm saying is you should go out in a blaze of glory. Just like James Dean, that shit. Yeah. Blizzard's a little bit too different, though. They can still make a good game. Bioware, I mean, it's just uh, seen that they can still make debatable. a good game. Debatable. But anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, moving on to 2000, we've talked Y2K! about... Y2K! Yes. So the world ended and we're living in the simulation. That's, That's why right. everything is... So weird. It actually did end people. So Dungeons and Dragons third edition is released. Mm -hmm. I think that is the most significant part of 2000. In a way, you also had Baldur's Gate 2, Icewind Dale, and of course you would put Diablo 2 on here. <laughs> of course I would. Okay, just just like stop for a second though and think about that. That like the year 2000, man, if you were a PC RPG fan, you were just like, you, you were just, it was just a constant nut. Just, just nothing but nut that whole year. <laughs> like well, you had RPG, RPG fans in general. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, cause Baldur's Gate 2, Icewind Dale and Diablo 2 all in the same year. Good Lord. And the funny thing is, is that Baldur's Gate 2 actually by all, but not all accounts, but by many accounts was even better received than the original, um, especially at least on release. Uh, so man, that's, that's some good stuff all in one year. That's an incredible year. Yeah. Um, and of course, like all those could have their own. I think we've already kind of talked about Bioware and Black Isle and all those things. But yeah, 
again, they're just really good games. And, you know, they're obviously candidates for episodes on this show. So 2001, you have expansions for Baldur's Gate 2 and Icewind Dale. You get the console game Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. Um, Which I still want to play, just for the record. I, I need to, there's, it was released for the PS2, I think, also. And I, I need to get yes. a copy of that because I, I think that is actually, like, right up my alley and I've never played it. I had it a long time ago. I don't know what happened to it. Yeah. But um, also Pool of Radiance Returns with Ruins of Mithdranor. And, uh, yeah, this is what you mentioned in 2001, the first time the third edition rule set was used in a video game. Yeah. Yeah, so Dark Alliance and Ruins of Mithranor were the first two to actually fully implement the third edition D&D rule set. Um, as we had mentioned, up until that point, everybody was using a uh, and d second edition, and that includes the Baldur's Gate games and like Icewind Dale and everything like that. And the thing is, is like for the most part, because I'll be honest, I was not super familiar with the second edition rule set back in 1998 because um, I wasn't playing D&D really at that time I didn't jump in like full force until like third edition or 3.5 but you could play Baldur's Gate and like Planescape Torment without knowing what like Thaco or like any of the other things were in the rule set and you'd get by okay but if you go back and look at those now like it's very clear that they tried to replicate the second edition rule set as closely as possible because that's all very prominently displayed in those games um, and also can be very confusing. So uh -huh. I think a lot of us were happy when we started moving on to third edition. All right. Moving forward, 2002, we had the Icewind Dale sequel, Eye of the Beholder for the GBA and Never Winter, Never Winter Nights, which is a game I think both of us absolutely love. Oh, my God, dude. I played so much fucking Neverwinter Nights. That's going to be an episode all on its own. I I, I don't want to go too far into that, but oh, man, um, I, I this might be a hot take, but uh, my personal opinion, I preferred Neverwinter Nights over Baldur's Gate. I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and, and one of the biggest things and the reason that that Neverwinter Nights was so huge was because it included the world builder tool set with the game so you could craft your own custom shit you could make your own world with npcs and quests and all that garbage and run it on a private server so you are basically a digital dm and one of my friends did that and we actually had like an ongoing like persistent world of neverwinter nights with custom stuff like on a private server for at least a couple of years. And it was one of the coolest fucking things ever. Like, mm, Neverwinter Nights is so good. Anyway, we, we should move on because I'm going to talk about yeah. that for like another hour. <laughs> I'll just say like the thing I, I love most about Neverwinter Nights is just the, that was a game that I used to play a lot on deployment. Yeah. Just putting it in my computer and then typing in a bunch of numbers and letters to get past the privacy code because I didn't <laughs> have one. Uh-huh. Um, now, I had a disk. I just didn't have the code. But yeah, a game I absolutely loved uh, near and dear to my heart. And yeah, we need to move on because we will talk about more of that. So 2003, uh, Dungeons and Dragons 3.5, the tabletop was released, which as Shane said, probably fixed a lot of the third edition. And then there was no other editions until fifth edition. So this was active for a long time. <laughs> it's, it's like the crystal skull. It just didn't exist. Didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, but there was... 
Shadows of Un- Undrantide and Hordes of the Underdark, and that was for Another Winter Nights. Those are expansions. You had D&D Heroes for the Xbox. You had Temple of Elemental Evil for Windows. And uh, you had Bioware releasing the kind of Baldur Gate formula for a game that's not Dungeons & Dragons, but you could tell it came kind of right out of Baldur's Gate with Star, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah. Um, so one thing you also note here, right, is that you start seeing the release uh, cadence of D&D starting to pick up because initially, you know, you had the original, then you very quickly had like a D&D, the first edition, then second edition, and you had a crazy long wait before you got third edition. And then things started to pick back up again. So you got 3.5, which, as Chris mentioned, did remediate a lot of the issues that players had with third edition. Uh, And then, yeah, so you get uh, a couple of games here. Honestly, they're not particularly notable. D&D Heroes was kind of meh. Temple of Elemental Evil was much better received than D&D Heroes, for the record. And, of course, the two expansions for Neverwinter came out like rapid fire after the the game came out because they were like oh shit this game is huge and rightly so um and yeah star wars nice of the old republic i threw that on there because yeah it's a bioware joint and you can kind of see the beginnings also of what we would come to know i think as like the bioware formula um things that you would end up seeing in like mass effect and things like that later on so yeah but there was a lot of dna that got carried over like for all intents and purposes Knights of the Old Republic is kind of like someone just playing a D&D campaign set in the Star Wars universe is really the best way to describe it. Yeah, that is the best way to describe it, really. I mean, it's, yeah. they're, like I said, they're essentially using the same formula they got with Baldur's Gate and they just transferred it over. Also, Disney, over. please make a Darth Revan series. Thank you. <laughs> you know, another thing I want to touch on, a lot of these games moving forward in terms of using the, the I guess, Wizards of the Coast license at this point are not very notable games. They're just, uh, most of them are not good or they're remakes. So I think we're really going to power through the 2000s because even up to today, it's it's kind of the same thing. Would you agree? Honestly, yeah. Yeah, for the most part. I think there's a just like a handful of standout things, but from the mid to late 2000s, there just really wasn't a lot to talk about. Like you, you kind of hit that peak with like Baldur's, Baldur's Gate, Gate 2 and then after Never that, it kind of went downhill. Yeah. yeah. I think it was just everything was living in the shadow of that and it couldn't compare. And Bioware wanted to move on to bigger and better things and they should have. And if you can't find another developer to do the same things Bioware was doing for you, it's just going to be a a steady just, you know, series of uh, um, disappointments. Yeah. 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 It's not even a law of diminishing returns. You're not getting the same people. Yeah. I mean, it's just they're just really, really big shoes to fill. Yeah. And they never got, you got people with tiny feet. That's what they kept doing. <laughs> fucking gnomes. <laughs> no, gnomes would make a good thing. It's like they hired fucking hobbits. <laughs> uh, so we're going to kind of power through this, I guess, unless we find something that really uh, piques our interest. So 2004, you had a sequel to Dark Alliance and Forgotten Realms Demonstone. Any of those you want to talk about? Yeah, Demon Stone is just kind of notable because it, I believe, and someone could probably fucking fact check me on this, but I believe it was the first one to have a story written by R.A. Salvatore, which was the author uh, or is the author of several D&D novels, um, most notably the Driz Dorden series. And also it had Patrick Stewart in there. So, you know, 
anything with yeah. Patrick Stewart can't be that bad, right? I think he's been in a lot of bad things. <laughs> anyway, moving on. 2005 had Dragon Shard. It did. Uh, notable because it was the first game set in Eberron, um, which matters to D&D nerds and nobody else. And it was an RTS with some light RPG elements. That's about it. Okay. 2006 had D&D Online. Yeah. So you'd think that this would be kind of big, right? And I guess in a way it sort of is. But D&D Online was a weird beast, man. Like I tried to play that and... Uh, I think part of its failing was it tried too hard to replicate a D&D party-based experience in an MMO. Like, to the point where you could not solo anything in the game. You had to have a group. And when you were in a group, only certain classes of players could do certain things in a dungeon. And if you didn't have that class, it either made it much more difficult or impossible to progress through certain things. So like their stringent adherency to trying to replicate a tabletop experience in an MMO, I think was actually to their detriment. And also they just couldn't compete with wow. Like, let's be real. I mean, 2006, that's two years into wow's life. It was crushing everything else in the MMO space. And when you had this like weirdly esoteric system that D and D online was trying to do, it just, it just, it, it didn't have a chance for the record. Like it was one of the first MMOs to really normalize the f- like free to play pricing structure for MMOs that a lot would end up adopting in the future. Um, but honestly that was just out of necessity because they couldn't sustain a subscription model <laughs> with, you know, the subscriber base that they had. Well, this was also the era of launch and fail MMOs left and right. Mm-hmm. You had so many MMOs that just everyone wanted a piece of the EverQuest or World of Warcraft uh, pie. They all wanted that money. They also had a highly lucrative without realizing people can only really focus on one, maybe two. And yeah, yeah there's going to be more failures than successes. And I think the most probably best remembered and maybe up until later at this time that would probably more most align with Dungeons and Dragons in terms of an MMO if you wanted that fix would probably be EverQuest. Yeah, probably. I mean, you I I think you of all people could probably make an argument for Ultima Online too, but yeah. Uh, no, because you don't do classes, you just you develop a character into being something mm. instead of selecting a class. It's Ultima Online's a little weird, but it's it's good. But also released in 2006 was Neverwinter Nights 2, so we had a sequel to Neverwinter Nights, anything Important. Well, yeah, we don't need to go into Other depth of that, game. but I mean, like, also Neverwinter Nights game. 2 was a good game, so. That's a good game. Should probably point that out. 2007, first expansion for Neverwinter Nights 2 and D&D Tactics for the PSP. I haven't even heard of that. Yeah, I imagine probably most people haven't, um, including myself. <laughs> but, I mean, A, it was released for the PSP, so, you know, there's that. And then also, it did kind of what... D&D Online did and also failed at, which was trying to do a very strict 3.5 rule set uh, interpretation. Um, maybe a neat idea to be a tactics game set in the D&D universe, but it was terribly executed. So it was just kind of a mess to play. Moving on. So we have two years to cover here because nothing really, I guess not much happened between 2008 and 2010. Nope. Uh, and the most important thing is nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yep. Uh, 3.5 kept on going strong. No new edition was released at all. We don't need to nope. talk about it. D&D 4th edition did not come out during this time frame. Absolutely not. Okay. So 2011, <laughs> uh, Daggerdale 
Yeah. So okay. this was, well, yeah. So the only reason that we point this out other than trying to give you an exhaustive list of D and D games is that for those two years, you know, up until like 2010, you didn't really get like anything except for some expansions for Neverwinter Nights 2 and then a bunch of kind of shitty Facebook games. So then 2011, everybody was like momentarily kind of excited because they're like, oh shit, like a real game is coming out. And then Daggerdale came out and it was a third person RPG that kind of sucked. So it was yeah, a letdown. Right. So in 2012, pretty much everything that came out after this were, was enhanced editions. Yes, the beginning of the let's reboot and HD remaster fucking everything. Actually, yeah, and that was just pervasive in all of video gaming, really, at this time. Yep. So Baldur's Gate and Baldur's Gate 2 came out with enhanced editions. We've already kind of talked about those, but just know that you can still get these enhanced editions and they're supposed to be really good. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that they're bad. Um, it's just that, I don't know. I personally feel like in some cases there's some uh, there's some HD remaster fatigue that sets in after they just start going back to the well one too many times. Yeah, it's called the Nintendo Switch. 2013, <laughs> Neverwinter. I didn't even know this was a thing. Oh, yeah. Apparently you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's another MMO. I have no idea what this is. Not to be confused with Neverwinter Nights or the the other Neverwinter Nights or, or the other Neverwinter Nights. <laughs> But yeah, it's just called Neverwinter. Yeah, it came out in 2013. It is, as far as I'm aware, a purely free-to-play MMO. There might be some sort of subscription thingy you can optionally get, but um, it's actually good. Uh, I've wanted to try it out. I played, I think, in the beta back in 2013, and it wasn't bad then, but they've improved it vastly over over time. And the neat thing about it is if you are a D&D fan and you are playing 5th edition now, like most of us are, Neverwinter actually stays up to date with the adventure modules that get released for 5e. So, you know, you get like the um, uh, Rise of Tiamat or like Dragon Horde. Um, I'm sure they probably have a Ghosts of Salt Marsh thing. So any of the stuff that's been coming out for 5e, they've also been releasing new content in Neverwinter. So that's kind of cool. Moving on, 2014. Yes. Uh, D&D 5th edition is released to much elation. Woo. 3.5's uh, rule has ended. That's right. We we can all finally stop playing Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Icewind, an enhanced edition of Icewind Dale comes out. Digital version of Lords of Waterdeep, uh, the board game. Which is an is excellent released. board game, by the way. Okay. And Divinity Original Sin, which I'm guessing is heavily inspired by D&D. Yes. So I pointed out Divinity Original Sin and then its follow-up in a couple of years from 2014 uh, purposefully because of the folks who developed it, Larian Studios. So just keep that in mind because we're going to talk about them again in a couple of minutes. Okay. And then in 2015, we have a shitty game called Sword Coast Legends and (laughs) Pillars of Eternity. Yeah, so Pillars of Eternity was also important. Um, It was a game that was crowdfunded by Obsidian Entertainment and for all intents and purposes was positioned as a spiritual successor to the games like Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, Planescape Torment, all of those, and uh, was very successful and a really solid game. So if you were someone who enjoyed those games, games of that era then this was a modern take on that that really held true to i think what made those crpgs of that era um as good as they were now i haven't played any of these games for the record so i'm glad that you have 
2016, Baldur's Gate Siege of Dragonspear. And I'm guessing this is significant because it's just an expansion to Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition, which is the first content in 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's notable for that and for kind of being the only thing in 2016, actually. But uh, yeah. yeah, so it was weird because you don't get this that often, but for what it's worth, yeah, your enhanced edition of Baldur's Gate, this was completely new original content for a game that was basically over 15 years old. So kind of neat. That is really neat. Yeah. So pretty much up until today, there really hasn't been anything except for more enhanced stuff and games that were heavily inspired by D&D, uh, Divinity, Divinity Original Sin 2, which is big amongst D&D fans, as is Pillars of Eternity 2. I didn't know if you wanted to touch on those you know, anymore. There's games nah, that are- not, not really. Um, outside of those two, I think it's just important to kind of point out there that uh, for those couple of years leading up to this year, um, 2017 through 19, uh, that was a little bit of like a regression back to the very, very early years that we talked about back in the seventies where you didn't have many actual licensed D and D games at all, but you did have really notable titles that were coming out that were very, very heavily influenced by it. So it's almost like just 40 years, it's like a 40 year cycle. Now we're back to, Hey, let's just take this material that's been around now for, you know, 46 years and let's continue to make things that we remember and we are inspired by and what reminds us of sitting around a table and rolling dice with 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 other people yeah i mean i think these developers kind of just took it upon themselves to be like listen if no one is you know if if wizards and whoever they want to contract with are not going to be making legit D &D video games then fuck it let's do it ourselves and they did a pretty good job well, they're releasing a lot of shitty games over the past like 15 years, too. So I mean, yeah, I mean, unless you're like really into like mobile, like idle clicker games. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then in 2020 this year, they released Baldur's Gate 3, which I guess a lot of people loved. Dude, a lot of people have been waiting that for that for a long time. I'm purposefully sticking to my guns and waiting for uh, a Steam sale or something because I don't typically buy things new anymore. But I almost made an exception for this. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah, from everything I've heard, it's it's really good. Uh, and it's the the true follow-up to Baldur's Gate 2. And the reason that I wanted you to keep Larian Studios in mind a couple minutes ago is because they were the ones that got tapped to develop Baldur's Gate 3. They, I think, had originally talked with Wizards of the Coast. I think it was 2014 right around the time that they were making Divinity um, about trying to make a licensed D&D game. And at the time, Wizards was just like, um, who the fuck are you? And also, we don't feel like you're proven enough to, to handle that license. And then like a, a couple years later, you know, they released Divinity Original Sin and then the follow-up in uh, 2017. And then it was at that point that Wizards actually came back to them and was like, hey, so we're sorry. Turns out you guys are actually really good at this. Uh, do you want to make Baldur's Gate 3? And they were like, fucking yes, we do. And yeah. so that's what we got in, in in this year. So that we're sorry for making all those hack and slashes. <laughs> yeah. So so that brings us up to current year. We did it. We made it. Yay. <laughs> 
So the That's one a lot of games, man. That I take away from this is that there were far more official D&D video game adaptations out there than I was even aware of. Yeah. And also I thought it was just going to be I thought it was going to be a few. I, I only knew of like Baldur's Gate and you know the other games in in the late 90s, early 2000s because that was my jam. I didn't know of all this other stuff. Yeah. Because I like I always thought that the height of D&D, like the real cultural height of Dungeons and Dragons was in the 80s. So I thought if there was going to be the, the most amount of video games would be in the, the, the late 80s, early 90s. So I'm kind of surprised that there are that many games. It's nuts. Some really good it quality is. ones, though, but a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, too, is like if you talk to your average video gamer, um, you're probably going to get the same answers, right? It's the ones that really stand out. It's the Baldur's Gates, the Planescape Torments, mm-hmm. Icewind Dale, and to a lesser extent, like maybe some of the MMOs or things like that. Um, and, and the arcade beat-em-ups. I don't want to preclude that because I think those were pretty notable also. But outside of those, really, for the most part, there were a lot of stuff that I think were just attempted and or maybe like cash grab titles, if you want to be more cynical about it, that just kind of fell well, to the wayside. Yeah. Mostly games that didn't understand Dungeons and Dragons and just wanted to attract the audience of people who played Dungeons and Dragons. And it looked it looks like, you know, for the most part, especially in the, uh, after the Baldur's Gate's of the worlds, the Bioware and Black Island involvement that, you know, people who like Dungeons and Dragons, they, they picked up on that shit. I mean, you have to deal with the fact that most people who play Dungeons and Dragons are relatively intelligent, I would say. And they know when they're being suckered into buying something that's not the thing they want to buy. They don't want to buy action hack and slashes, no matter how good the games are or how poor they are, especially. They're just not going to do it. And I think that's the biggest problem that you saw in the late 2000s. And I think that's why you saw so much success and you have so many good memories of, especially with the D&D crowd who played video games with like Pool of Radiance or Eye of the Beholder or those kind of games. And that's why a lot of the games that are lesser known, they are action adventures. They're not RPGs. Yeah, which is not to say that they're not good. I mean, most of them weren't, but uh, Dark Alliance, for the record, was actually a solid action RPG title, but... Uh, and it's not to say that you can't do something different with the D and D license because it's been proven that you can, I mean, the arcade beat em ups are a great example. And again, like dark Alliance is a good one because it's an ARPG, which is not your traditional sort of like character based RPG, like the, the party systems and stuff like that. So it can be done. It's just that I think there needs to be a better understanding of the IP in general, to really make those things, you know, kind of work. And the more that I think about it, originally I had said it was weird that like the lull of D&D also coincided with the massive boom in like the late 90s of the video games. But that actually makes more sense now that I've had time to think through it because from like a D&D player perspective, if the game itself is kind of lagging and you're not super into kind of what's going on at the time like with 3rd edition or like the really far tail end of second edition mm-hmm. then when you have this like you know glut of really great video games that come out in a short period of time i can kind of see why the popularity of the video games shot up while the tabletop kind of dropped off because we stayed were stayed on the table 
Yeah, yeah. There you go. Exactly. Because you're kind of trying to fill that void, I think, in 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 some ways. You know, you're like, well, if the game itself is not really that great right now, and I have some issues with it, at least I know I can go and play. You know, Baldur's Gate and get a D and D experience that is good and fun and enjoyable. So, I guess maybe that makes more sense. And a lot of us right now are hoping that with the boom of fifth edition, um, particularly with it becoming as crazy popular as it, I think D and D is more popular now than it ever has been just on a general level. Thanks in no small part to things like critical role and, and stuff like that. But with Baldur's Gate three coming out, I think a lot of us are hoping that this might be the sign of like a new renaissance of, of D and D video games. Cause you know, I think, I think it's time you know, our, our late 2000s, 2010s, that was a, that was a rough time for D&D video games. And so I feel like we might be, we might be entering into a new era. At least that's what I'm hoping. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. Uh, we do, we are starting a new generation of games. And of course the indie scene is bigger than it's ever been. So there's a lot of potential there yeah. for a lot of new ideas or a lot of new opportunities. I just think it's going to be more games that are inspired by those old games rather than directly taking the license. But we'll see uh, just because I think the indie scene is so explosive now and it would have to be a big company really to take advantage of it. I think uh, a Baldur's Gate, I don't know how big of a game that is, but you're not going to see it. Video games rise to the level that you did with Baldur's Gate is what I'm saying. I, I just don't think that's going to happen anymore, but we'll see. I could be completely wrong. But uh, I think that's about it. Shane, if you have any final words before we wrap this up. No, no, I, I think I think we did a f- fine job. We've we've put down in audio a, a an accurate historical account of Dungeons <laughs> as, and Dragons. As much as you can in about an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ashton, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. This one's for you, man. Uh, and we definitely appreciate your patronage. And by the way, if you want to participate in suggesting or bringing a topic to the tabletop, go ahead and go to our Patreon. And we have a tier where you can suggest a topic for a future episode. Every patron gets the vote on episode topics, by the way. So you're never out of it. And just go to uh, bit.ly slash rhpatron and you can check us out there. And uh, outside of that, I guess other quick couple plugs. Um, we have our merch store, so you can go check that out. Um, you know, I think actually if you if you if you order soon, you might be able to get things in time for Christmas. So there is that. Uh, you can go over to bit.ly slash rhp merch and uh, come uh, hang out in the discord. It's public. It's open. You know, we, we love chatting with with everybody and uh, and we got a good little community going. So if you want to jump in there and talk about uh, video games or just general bullshit like that's that's what we're here for. So you can uh, visit bit.ly slash RHP chat and uh, join in on the conversation. Yeah, Come on in. You'll get updates on new episodes, future episodes, even maybe. And it's a really good time. Yeah. So I think that about does it for us, Shane. I think so. So, with all of that being said, until next time. Play with your Thacko Rollin' Dice Joysticks. Shane here with a quick message. You know, the one rule Chris and I have always gone by regarding advertisements is this. It has to be something we use and can personally vouch for. If you know me, you know I love coffee. And Bones Coffee Company has been my go-to for home brewing for quite some time now. 
Their small batch beans come in an impressive variety of flavors like Mint Invaders from Chocolate Space or Electric Unicorn, which I swear tastes exactly like Fruity Pebbles. And the best part? No added sugar or calories involved, just natural flavors infused right into the beans themselves. Build your own sample pack of five four ounce bags to find out which flavors speak to you, or jump in headfirst with full 12 ounce bags. They've even got K-Cups. Step up your homebrew game with Bones Coffee by visiting bit.ly slash RHP Bones. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash R-H-P-B-O-N-E-S.